Hey, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to say at the top that this is an interview that Paul Hodes and I did with Dan Perry, who is the former lead Associated Press reporter for the Middle East. He's based in Israel. We're talking about the situation that has unfolded over the last 48 hours. Since we recorded this, some new information has emerged that perhaps Iran did play a lead role in planning this attack, in which case there are a number of things that could happen from here. This information is obviously not confirmed yet, and it was not out at the time that we had this conversation with Dan Perry. So you'll hear him talk about the potential here, but that information was not uh, available at the time. And obviously, this is a fast moving, fast evolving situation. We wanted to get this interview out to you as soon as possible because the facts on the ground are changing and, and will continue to change as this unfolds this week. This is Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. October 7th this weekend has been called Israel's 9-11, and there are few people on earth that are better able to talk about what's happening and what may happen next than Dan Perry, former lead reporter for the Associated Press for the Middle East, who is based in Tel Aviv. Welcome back. Thank you. I want to say that we're very thankful that you and your family are safe. And I'd love if we could just start off by asking you to tell us about the last 48 hours, if you don't mind, what your physical experience has been, what you've witnessed, and how it's felt all around you to be there in the middle of this. 48 hours. Friday was very peaceful and very reflective of life in the, the modern and vibrant city that is Tel Aviv. I met a friend at a bar on the beach for wine and beer. Then my wife and I went out to a movie and it was just delightful. And then at 6 or 7 a.m. on Saturday, I was awoken by air raid sirens, explosions over my head, which were Iron Dome <clears throat> intercepting incoming missiles from Gaza. And, and my wife, who's an early riser, being unusually agitated for, for Saturday again, saying it's it's a war, it's a war, and I thought she was exaggerating. But since then, it's been a, an incredible situation because alongside whatever little danger a person like me would face being in Tel Aviv, statistically, the chances are small, the rocket landing on your head in the city of several million people. That's the metro area. It's very disconcerting to have constant air raid sirens, explosions overhead. And beyond that, like everyone in Israel who has attachment to the country, and despite my American accent, we most certainly do, it's just overwhelming the stories that are coming in. Because if you consider that only uh, almost a thousand people were killed in one day, that right away, relative to population, is like five 9-11s for the U.S., but the nature of it also, the stories that are coming out are just scripted for absolute, complete and total horror. It's indescribable. But you have families burned to death in their homes as they slept, entire families massacred, uh, the children first, the, the father first, people, uh, little girls making calls saying they killed my father and I'm hiding with an axe in the safe room and come rescue me. And some of them like didn't make it out. But instances of rape, hangings, and throughout all of it, the assailants are filming themselves on videos that then go on Telegram and other social media, uh, rejoicing over this barbarism. Now, few more than me uh, have written consistently and publicly criticized the occupation of the West Bank and Israel's policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians. My quibbles with all of that is never-ending. But, but that's in a realm of politics and strategy, and should there be one state, is it democratic enough? And 
this kind of stuff. It is, this is a completely different beast. This is terrorism of a nature that I've heard called antistic, but that honestly does a disservice to any animal I've ever met. And when confronted with what apologists would say, this degree of rage against you, and what others might call this barbarism directed clearly against you, and for a while there were reports of terrorists that got away and are running around the country, they, they could come here. It's obviously, it's a problem. And the way it went down with hostages by the score and probably several hundred held by Hamas in Gaza, and this includes little children, of which there's videos of them kicking around, physical, old ladies. That may stay Israel's hand in retaliating, responding, and it may not. So beyond the uh, inconvenience, shock, and horror, beyond the standard questions of what to do next, there is a strategic conundrum of the highest order. So what, Dan, it's, it's difficult not only for to hear, it's just unbelievable to hear about this. No, nothing on this scale has happened in Israel for a long time. And the degree of unprecedented is going to be examined for a long time. But we are two days into Israel. Israel has now declared war on Hamas. What are your sources expecting the next week to look like? I got to be honest. There is more than one scenario. I'm not sure they've decided. To a degree, it might depend on political developments. Is there going to be a national emergency government that would maybe make it easier for Israel to take action and telegraph that they're going to? A lot of people expected a ground invasion of Gaza the very first day. But that is complicated by two factors. One, I don't think they're ready for it. To do that and to minimize the likelihood of cataclysmic levels of casualties on both sides, you got to prepare. And I'm not so sure they're prepared to do do this with a 24-hour turnaround. And even if they decide to, whatever the preparations, it's going to be very ugly, and that requires a lot of political will and a willingness to risk these hostages being executed. So I don't envy the people who now have to decide. For me to therefore predict what they're going to do would be foolish. I can analyze what, what might get hand. Its goal is chaos and harming Israel. They care not a fig for their own population. Indeed, I'm pretty sure they're happy when there's collateral damage, as we say, because that gives them points in public and, 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 and global PR. My cynicism about them and their motivations is complete and total. So I'm assuming they would invite an Israeli attack upon Gaza. It's clear that they're highly motivated by getting back the prisoners who are in Israel. There's many hundreds, maybe a couple thousand. Some of them are hardcore terrorists for people who have so much blood on their hands that it's like it, it could it could provide material for many movies. And Israel does not want to release others. Less, I think Israel's trigger finger on 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 arresting people who is, who have suspicions of ties to terrorism or whatever has been rather light. Hamas in Gaza is currently led by Ihyas, one of the thousand odd T's whom Israel eventually freed in order to get back one soldier. Eli, when he was released, he said, "I'm going to get back all the other prisoners." I have little doubt that whatever complex set of motivations they had to do this now and to take this potentially suicidal act, one of them was to make good on that promise. So they're gonna bargain as hard as they can for for a return of their of their prisoners. Uh, and one already hears reports as we speak of a probably Qatar mediated notion of Hamas releasing the women and the children uh, in exchange for the women being held in Israeli prisons. That would make a lot of sense from their point of view, because in, in their twisted milieu, I think the holding and abusing of children and women actually is uncool to enough of their coterie that they, they want to get rid of those, I think. I'm not, I'm not even sure of that. 
the remaining men, and certainly the ones that they can ascertain have any tie to the military, as many Israeli men do as reservists, uh, I think they're going to bargain very hard with. And of course, further complicating the equation is the extreme likelihood, I don't want to speak of certainty, but extreme likelihood, that uh, among the hostages, and I do call them hostages, uh, are uh, foreign nationals who are dual nationals, including U.S. citizens. So that's going to bring in other countries, that's going to create media interest in those countries, which is what they want. And so their interest is to bargain very hard, to look like they're somehow decent by releasing the women and children, and to prolong this as as necessary. And Shalit is in jail in a Hamas underground cell, I believe, for many years. Uh, Can Israel tolerate this going on for many years? I do not know, because despite Israel's uh, history of uh, violence and conflict and the tragedy and sacrifice and messiness and all that. In fact, that's all true. But in addition to that, it is a prosperous Western society with modernity and with expectations of the quality of life that is not unlike what you have in France, Britain, and Germany, whose GDP uh, is all uh, per capita GDP is lower than Israel's. Okay. So it's going to be excruciating for that kind of society to go through this level of, of trauma and when people are traumatized, they can sometimes, and, and institutions and societies and countries are traumatized, they can take action that is unpredictable. And so please don't make me predict what they're going to do. There are talks. There, Israel's government, and I've spoken uh, about this uh, with Matt before, has a very strong element of fanatic, fanatics and fascists. And one of them has already gone on public and said we should flatten Gaza like there's no hostages, meaning sacrifice. Now imagine what the families of those hostages are thinking when this moron is talking this way. I wanted to follow up on that. We didn't have a particular order here because there's so many things to ask about, but we were going to talk about the hostage situation. Let's go there now. You invoked the situation with Galad Shalit, uh, which did go on for five years, if I recall correctly. I remember during that time that he was being held hostage, I would think of him often, and I'm an American, granted I'm a Jewish American, he was on my mind. I can only imagine what an emotionally fraught subject Gilad Shalit was for Israelis and the other hostages who have been held over the years. And Israel now does face the prospect of dozens, if not hundreds of hostages, as you say. At the same time, Benjamin Netanyahu has said that the objective in the immediate time frame is to make sure that no attack like this can be conducted by the leadership of Hamas for, I think he put it, many years to come. So clearly there is an immediate military objective. If I just cut you off. Sorry. Yes, please. You say you quote Netanyahu, and then you say so clearly. I think that's a you need with this particular politician a new paradigm shift. If he says something. There's no reason to believe that thing is real. So nothing is clear. Furthermore, the thing that he just said is obvious boilerplate what they always say. So that doesn't suggest a game changer. And a three, he's a politician in a state of grave crisis, personally. True. Because so many bonehead moves preceded this catastrophe that he is a signatory to. So clear is his cul- culpability in uh, a tragedy that is also a disgraceful humiliation. So obviously had Hamas telegraphed that this was their intention. So manifestly had he been forewarned uh, by security chiefs while his cabinet allies were cursing them out and telling them to go to hell and that we don't need you and our boys in the yeshiva who are praying are just as important as your security assessment. This type of mistake, to quote a James Bond villain, 
should be tough to bounce back from. Yeah, and that that was exactly what I was going to ask about is I guess I I find it hard to reconcile what would one would think would be immediate military objectives if nothing else than to show in in your words that Hamas can't attack Israel like this with impunity that there is that this is going to be avenged that that there is a heavy price to pay. I don't know how one does that military objective in the context of the hostage situation. And so I guess that's uh, the- That's what I'm saying. Look, if you take out of the equation his difficult political, his dire straits, and just look at what Israel would do if it had a normal government, even one of the earlier Netanyahu governments, which were not irrational players, there had been a conception in Israel. The word conception has a certain role in uh, Israeli history because that is what is attached to the idee fix that the Golda Meir government had in the early 70s that so great was Israel's victory in 1960 that the Arabs would never again dare attack. Even though Sadat said, I'm going to attack unless you give me back the Sinai. And it was very clear that their conception got in the way. And so they were more or less surprised. The result was a war that to this day is considered a failure for Israel. Not exactly a strategic failure, but the losses were too great because of their being on the back foot in the early days of it. The conception here was that having a fanatical terrorist group being in charge of the Gaza Strip is perfectly fine because they can be contained to a model where, yeah, they occasionally fire rockets at us because that's what they do. And we then bomb them into submission and civilians there are killed inevitably because they're using them as human shields. But Israel doesn't really suffer that much. The bombs aren't that deadly because of Iron Dome. And the extra special cherry on top is that by having Gaza be under Hamas, the Palestinian authorities weakened, its territory is sected, and the claim, the ability for Palestinian state to process is pushed into the future. And so it's a win-win for Israel, other than a few people that do get hurt by the rockets every now and again. And of course, the two million long-suffering people of Gaza who have to live under the boot of these criminals. That was the conception, that it could be contained. That conception has been shattered in a way that is worse than 73. In 73, yeah, Israel was surprise attacked by major armies backed by the Soviet Union. And it ultimately prevailed. Okay, here, it was invaded by a thousand terrorists who made a mockery of the security fence, who ran riots for many hours and in the cases of some communities for a couple of days, massacred people at will, committed atrocities, bragged about it on social media, and Israel was unable to respond effectively quickly because this government, in its recklessness, had other goals than protecting the people around Gaza. They thought, in their conception, that Hamas would never dare do anything like this, even though these guys put out videos saying they would and showing how they're training for it. Instead, to satisfy the hard right in the Israeli coalition that wants to annex parts of the West Bank, expand Jewish settlement, which has the effect of creating a binational state that isn't Jewish, but they're too dumb to see it, and protect extremist settlers who run around legitimately terrorizing the Palestinians, that required much of the army to be in the West Bank, about seven times, I believe, more manpower in the West Bank than on the Gaza border, to protect extremist settlers whose actions are the disgrace to the Jewish people. So that these are the choices they make. And there were obviously a series of failures. There was a version of an intelligence failure, though I do believe that there was intelligence, but clearly wasn't taken seriously. The lines of defense around Gaza were abandoned to a few posts that were sparse and and, and, few, and were overrun. And there was no second line. Of and there was no quick plan to move in there, not even with drones and helicopters. The, the failure is so dire 
that, that I think Israel reasonably feels a need to retaliate effectively in order to avoid projecting kind of weakness that would make it tempting for Hezbollah to attack in the north, thinking, look how incompetent they are. This has to be fixed immediately. Otherwise, there really is an existential threat. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. You can listen to the Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of the Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. Dan, let me just turn your attention internally for a moment. So what, from the outside looking in, we have seen his attempt to hold political office despite the kind of corruption and criminality that is akin here to Donald Trump's situation, followed by this crazy alleged, quote, judicial reform, unquote, which attempted to, attempts to strip away Israeli democracy, it amounts to an authoritarian takeover. There have been massive street protests. So that's that's been, or it appears to have been, the internal complex that Hamas must have seen. And that's what we talked about the last time you were on the show. Now, given this emergency, opposition leaders have often to join, offered to join a, a wartime unity. What does that look like? How long does it last? And given the failure of the Netanyahu government to, per your last answer, about the clear failures in strategy and the kowtowing to the fascists on the right, how, do, what does it mean? What does it mean for him? Is it insult on injury? Is this the last straw that Israel gets through the first part of dealing with this, and Netanyahu is gone? Is there any scenario in which Netanyahu is strengthened by this crisis? Yes. Netanyahu's hypocrisy and alleged corruption and failures are so great that he has no business being in power. That he should have somehow overcome this while being on trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust is an act of uh, political skill so extreme that I think he should never be ruled out. And in my coverage... In my career as a foreign correspondent, I ran Associated Press in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. That's a lot of leaders and a lot of corruption, a lot of mendacity, and a lot of political skill. I've never seen anything better. I look at U.S. politics. I follow closely. Obviously, I'm American. He puts he he leaves Reagan in the dust. Maybe even Clinton. Maybe even Obama. See, those guys had political skill, but it attached to some actual merit. So that's a different context. The guys in trial for in trial for bribery and type of the the profit of how he conducts his business and how he and his wife run around the country staying in expensive hotels shutting down communities to, 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 so they can have their champagne and in luxury they come up with reasons to, to fly abroad and they stay all weekend in those expensive hotels they bring in huge entourages with them to cause Zelensky when they met him in new york to say wow this is a big entourage it's in your face their absurdity and yet he managed somehow, because of opposition mistakes that were themselves ridiculous, to eke out a tie in the last election that translated into a small majority in parliament because of some opposition parties not getting in because of splits. So he's so skilled, yes, he might somehow survive. But factoring out that Houdini aspect of Netanyahu, this should not be survivable. 
because this is not 9-11 where Bush could say, I didn't see it coming, and Al-Qaeda anyway established their base in Afghanistan under Clinton. No, this is on him, 100%. And, and on the army, honestly. The army should have sounded a bigger alarm than to allow themselves to put the South at such risk. It's unpopular to say these things right now, okay? There, there is a sense that now is that time for politics, or for petty accounting, and the time will come, etc. I'm not so sure. Because you are dealing with a political Houdini who, given enough time, may reframe the narrative somehow. As for the emergency government, there's more than one model for that. There's one where they enter the government more or less stiffly and don't ask for any specific ministries uh, or functions uh, in order to lend uh, moral support and political backing to extreme actions to come. But that would mean moderates and liberals and decent normative people who have some introspection in their soul and some knowledge of history, sharing the cabinet table with nut jobs like the national security minister, quote unquote, who has a whole bunch of convictions to his name, including for support for terrorist groups, which he's proud about. And by the way, this particular guy has not been heard from since the national security emergency that he has presided over on Saturday. I'm not sure they want to do that. I'm not sure they want to normalize and legitimize that. It's complicated. Lapid, the former prime minister, offered to come in if he gets rid of the extreme right. But that would be Netanyahu signing his resignation pretty much because Lapid would only stay in during the emergency and clearly bolt after that. And Netanyahu will have betrayed the people currently propping him up. And so that's maybe not such a good political calculus for him. I think the emergency government notion is an effort by the opposition to play by the rules and play nice and do the right thing and so forth during a time of emergency. And it has no shelf life after this particular emergency is over. And certainly there will come a time, even if not precisely now, when the knives will come out. And Netanyahu is hanging by such a thread. His authoritarian overhaul is such a political calamity for the right because they would be crushed in elections today before this, before Saturday, they would have been crushed. Two-thirds of the people show they don't want it, and small wonder. To call it a judicial reform is to succumb, I'm sorry guys, to a bullshit narrative. That's what it is. It's not a reform, and it's not about uh, the judicial system alone. The over 200 laws that they have proposed, and all of them are trial balloons proposed by coalition members to see how they go in the public, but there's 200 and some laws that they've all proposed in various stages of attempted legislation. One of them would allow the coalition to bar the opposition from running for the Knesset, uh, removing all judicial review. This is a complete and total Putinization of Israel. And it, it is yet more testament to Netanyahu's political acumen, not acumen, but wherewithal, that a third of the people do support it. Let's, uh, let me two people, much less a third. Let me follow up on that. Part of the wave that brought Paul into Congress was the overreach by the Bush administration in the wake of 9-11, not just militarily, but domestically, the Patriot Act, some of the extremities of what we did in the Department of Homeland Security, not to mention what the United States did in Guantanamo Bay that we were all just reminded of with the death of Senator Feinstein and her heroic decision to bring all of that to light. My point being that with a figure as odious and Houdini, as you say, as Benjamin Netanyahu, I hate to bring this up at a moment of such crisis and tragedy and an ongoing human tragedy, but I think what you're raising is the very real possibility that Benjamin Nibu in his twisted soul 
may see this situation as a way to perpetuate his own rule and to assure his own safety from prosecution. Do you, is that a scenario here where not Netanyahu is able to take advantage of the rally round the flag that we are seeing, which is appropriate, to cement his own safety? Is that a real scenario here? I hope no one is, no one listening or watching would be too upset to hear me assess that if he thought he could get away with that, the way Putin got away with his own Putinization, then yeah, he would. But I don't think he's clever. He's not unintelligent. I don't think he can, and I don't think he thinks he can. If they were to try to, there's no rallying around Netanyahu. The rallying around the flag is to deal with this Hamas disaster, partly caused by the government's recklessness and inaction and misconception of reality. If he tried to do what you're describing, I don't think he'd have the support within his own coalition. The 64 out of 120 people in the coalition, I think, still include just barely five righteous persons in the Sodom of the coalition. They will prevent it. People like the defense minister Gallant will not go on. But there are some others. Moreover, if they tried to pass legislation of this kind, it would be struck down by the Supreme Court. They will then try to somehow annul the Supreme Court, It'll, which, again, they don't have the votes for. It could potentially be a constitutional crisis. In the worst case scenario, it could lead to violence internally. I don't want to say the dreaded, to repeat the dreaded term whose acronym is CW, but it wouldn't fly. And remember, the opposition to Netanyahu includes to his authoritarian overhaul, because that's what it is. And in general, to their policies in the West Bank and vis-a-vis the Palestinians, and to their acquiescence to the Haredi parties. That is a whole different issue that has its own potential to be destructive to Israel's capacity to operate as a modern economy. The opposition to it includes the entire defense and security establishment, the entire business and technology establishment, the entire academic establishment, most of the journalistic establishment. Almost anyone who's not religious and literate in Israel, basically, it's, it's overwhelming. I'm sure the opposition to Netanyahu accounts for 85% of the GDP, maybe 90 you can't just ignore that. I, I don't think they can succeed. But yeah, to answer your question, if his life depended on it, or if he assessed that I'm wrong, then that would absolutely be the goal right now. So look, it, it's not necessarily the, the time for any recrimination about the intelligence failures situation. And you're, what we've talked about before, you have certainly added uh, a lot of nuance and uh, facts to the question of the intelligence failure in terms of both the political and political implications and strategic decisions that were made that facilitated what has happened here. But given how deeply embedded you are and sourced in Israel, what have you heard about the question of the intelligence failures? And are there any explanations about how this could have been missed. How could anyone have missed what was going on? Apparently, preparations for months backed by Iran facilitated with thousands of terrorists and thousands of missiles. How? Sometimes a failure is a failure, and Israel is not incapable of failure. But there's a lot of nuance here, as as you suggest. It appears, for example, this particular plan was carried out by Hamas only, to the exclusion of any other terrorist groups in, in Gaza that don't have as much power as Hamas. Or part of Hamas is not as well penetrated as Islamic Jihad. Moreover, 
Israel certainly knew that they were planning such an attack. But it's possible that Hamas proved adept at keeping the timing, the knowledge of the timing, limited to just a very a few handful of people who could then deploy a system of organizing a thousand invaders overnight. It's possible. Thirdly, I'm hearing reports and suggestions that there wasn't. It was just ignored by a government. I don't know. I don't want to say how incompetent they are because that might... I, I just don't have to think, honestly. I really hope Lapid and Gantz enter the government because they are not incompetent. It's at that level. And That's... I've been arguing against the unity government for as long as I can remember. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. That's maybe not a bad jumping off point to the, the name of your Substack is Ask Questions Later, which I presume is a reference to shoot first, ask questions later. And Indeed. In light of the incompetence that you've just spoken to with the government, one has to question their ability to make long-term strategic decisions. Now, look, anyone would have a compromised ability to make long-term strategic decisions at a time where you're 48 hours out from suffering this horrific, catastrophic disaster and an ongoing human crisis like what is being faced in Israel right now. So this would be difficult for anyone, but you're suggesting that it would be supremely difficult for this government to make considered long-term decisions. So in that context, I want to ask you about a story you told uh, to a, another podcaster, Chris Ryback. Um, you talked about the occupation of the West Bank and your view that while it's ultimately destabilizing and unsustainable, there's at least an understandable strategic rationale because Israel is so geographically narrow in the middle. There's a strategic reason to say we need this buffer here or we can be cut in half in, in a lightning strike. And, and so that makes at least some sense. And e even though many U.S. and Israeli observers have raised fears over decades now that the increasing settlements in the West Bank have created a strategic trap, it's much harder for Israel to extricate itself from an unsustainable situation. Again, that strategic rationale at least still exists. So my question here is you've written, Israel has now clearly exhausted its approach in Gaza ever since the Hamas takeover 17 years ago. How can Israel avoid adopting an approach to Gaza now that won't become another strategic trap? In other words, as you say, we ask questions later. Maybe this is a time to shoot first and ask questions later. But later, it could be too late, and we could find that we've we that Israel has landed itself in an even more unsustainable situation. Yeah, look, many many a fan of uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly figured out that my blog is a name is a play on that line from Eli Wallach. I just liked the almost anti-intellectual approach that suggests shoot first and ask questions later. In my case, because I've been accused of being too reflective and a little too intellectual in my writing and all this kind of stuff. So I like the contrast. And indeed, there are times when you don't overcomplicate, but you see the essence very quickly and you shoot first. I don't generally advise it when the stakes are as high as the occupation of two, two and a half million people. Maybe ask some questions before you shoot them. If Israel ends up occupying Gaza, which would be a really bad thing, and it would carry endless in, in civilians and and in soldiers on both sides. If they do that, the answer to your question is pretty simple. 
for God's sake, keep it a military occupation as benign as it can be and as short as it can be for as long as it must be, as opposed to doing what Israel has done in the West Bank, which is one of the stupidest things I've seen a country do in recent history, which is to populate it with Jews and Jewish communities throughout for the express purpose of making a partition impossible, where if a partition is impossible, then half your country will not be Jews and you want to be the Jewish state and also a democracy. That is just under boneheaded and Wikipedia. It should just have that particular story. Yeah, no more Jewish settlements, I would say, is a way to handle that. But, but in no way does that idealize the uh, reading of Gaza. Israel's pullout from Gaza was necessary and smart. What wasn't was acquiescing to, and it really, in a plausibly deniable way, encouraging the rule of Gaza by fanatical terrorist maniacs who are, gonna, who, who are going to oppress their own population, revel in a destruction that they might bring upon them, and are dedicated not only to the destruction of Israel, but to nihilism in general. These are not your friends. And some things in history bring about clarity. And I would hope that for the highly misguided Israelis who voted for this coalition, for whatever reason they had, and they had their reasons, but the sum result should not have been this. This should bring clarity that the enemies, not only of Israel, but of all free people, are not the Supreme Court and not a bunch of liberals shouting democracy and not pilots who'd rather not be dragged to the Hague because Israel's judicial system has been eviscerated, uh, and not moderate Palestinians and moderate Arabs and the Palestinian Authority. It is rejectionist, Islamist fanatics who are the enemies of all people, primarily their own. Dan, I want to turn your attention briefly to the geopolit some of the geopolitical issues. There's a general understanding that Iran calls the shots with Hezbollah and also for Hamas, and strong speculation that, and probably the likelihood that not, Iran was aware of and driving and organizing with Hamas on this attack, especially in light of the talks with Saudi Arabia and the possible detente. Iran sees Saudi Arabia as its chief rival in the Mideast for power, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, there's a possibility that Hamas did this without direction from Iran. There's some, we have to hold that possibility open. What are you hearing, if anything, about what's going on between the government of Israel and its neighbors and its, and with Iran and uh, the thoughts about Iran's involvement in this? I do not think Israel's going to attack Iran or, or take any action against Iran that's significant unless they can prove Iran ordered up this action. If yes, then that's a different story. Historically, Iran is a backer of Hamas. They're aligned. But Iran is Shiite, Hamas is Sunni. And Hamas has its own quite independent and focused agenda to prevent the partition of Israel in order to expel Zionism from, the, from Palestine. That is markedly different from Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a creature of Iran, funded by Iran, inspired by Iran, basically controlled by Iran, fully armed by Iran. None of that applies. That doesn't apply to Hamas. Now, might they not have sought a green light? Because after all, they are a little bit dependent on Qatar, which is in the zone. Might Iran not have encouraged them? I do not know. I don't think Israel knows. Maybe if they have intelligence, they haven't made it public and I haven't heard it. But it's reasonable to speculate that Iran and the Palestinians both took a look at what seems to be going down, listened to M Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, got the impression that he's willing to do a deal with Israel 
largely because he wants a security pact with the U.S. and a domestic nuclear program acquiesced to and even organized by the U.S. And so much does he want those things that he's willing to basically drop Saudi Arabia's traditional demand that any deal include a two-state solution or at least very significant steps towards it. You could argue selling the, selling the Palestinians down the river. Iran does not want to see Saudi Arabia thusly strengthened with a domestic nuclear program, with an alliance with the U.S., with an alliance with Israel, the little Satan, with Egypt being part of the equation. That really isolates Iran. They clearly don't want this. And the Palestinians clearly don't want this. So interests converge. Let's conclude on this. I agree with you that too much speculation or certainly asking you to predict at this point would be foolish, not a service to you. On the other hand, there is such a thing in medicine as a differential diagnosis, where you lay out, here are the possibilities and their relative likelihoods. And you've done a little bit of this exercise with Chris Ryback, I was hoping you might do a little bit with us in terms of what do you see as the possible paths, the most likely possible paths going forward from here in the next six months and the next year in terms of Gaza, the government of Israel, and how Israel moves forward from this disaster? Uh, I would say that in one way or another, a number of avenues present themselves. One is, it's a little hard to see how this doesn't lead to what the Palestinians would call a hostage swamp, what the Israelis would call a prisoner release. In other words, Israel biting a bullet, releasing a whole bunch of prisoners, some of whom are genuinely dangerous terrorists, in exchange for the hostages. And that would be a win for Hamas. But it certainly looks like that's one highly plausible end. Another is that the pressure on Israel to drop the right wing's foolish conception regarding Hamas, the patience for that has been exhausted. And this is a bit ironic because the right wing in Israel, you'd expect them being the more nationalistic to be the less peaceable and the more inclined to a light trigger finger. But in fact, they're going to face pressure to go to war with Hamas uh, from otherwise more moderate people because they don't share the right wing's desire to weaken the P in this weird, complicated fashion. And also just because this has happened. So some version of Israel ceasing to tolerate what's happening in Gaza seems likely, and a prisoner swap seems likely. The question is how they happen concurrently. And that's a square peg in a round hole. I mm -hmm. know how. I think that's what they're trying to figure out right now. It may lead to in-between solutions, like targeted assassinations of certain well-known individuals <laughs> at the top of the pyramid in Gaza. That could happen. And we could see a political realignment in Israel. As I said before, and I was quoting a line from, from Live and Let Die, one of my favorite James Bond movies, one of the bad guys, henchmen, has, has captured Bond, and he's explaining that, that uh, Bond did something bad to the chief henchman. And he says, that type of mistake is tough to bounce back from. And they're going to throw him out of an airplane, but of course never. The type of mistake that has been the entirety of the Netanyahu government for the past 10, 11 months, doing such internal damage to social cohesion, to the economy, to uh, Israel's standing in the world, to tech investments, and indeed to its security. Ending in, in this cataclysmic event should be tough to bounce back from. There's a fashion in the world that you can disdain expertise, and you can even discourage education, and you can laugh at the elites, and that's how you should be. And we saw a bit of that in the U.S. with the election of a certain president in 2016. But not only. And that everything will be okay because the system will take care of it. I think is a message to the world. If you elevate incompetence, you're going to get incompetence. And that could end in tragedy. 
And maybe somehow that's a silver lining on a very dark cloud. Maybe this is a lesson to the world because I do notice the world is paying attention. We got incompetence and tragedy. Israel has a better leadership within that can both guarantee security more effectively and pursue an understanding with the Palestinians and with the Arab world. That exists in Israel. And if we want to avoid mayhem in this region, and indeed, if we want to avoid the kind of mayhem that can be can affect other parts of the world, then everyone should be hoping. The Substack is Ask Questions Later. Dan Perry, continued wishes, wishes for you and your family and your friends there in Israel to stay safe and wishes, I think, for all of us that the, the greatest number of people and, and lives can be saved in the days ahead. And thanks so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. Thank you, guys. Uh, I appreciate it.